Amen. All right, well, we're there in Job chapter number 41. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Job, one chapter a week. And uh, we find ourselves in Job 41. We're one uh, chapter away from being done with the book of Job. And uh, it's been a long, long journey together on Wednesday nights as we've been studying the book of Job. We're almost done with it. And praise the Lord for that. If you remember in uh, the last chapter, in chapter 40, we had God describe for us this creature, uh, this beast named Behemoth. And we uh, saw that it was a dinosaur that was mentioned in Scripture. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, uh, but this sermon is definitely in some ways connected to that sermon. So if you didn't hear that sermon, I encourage you to go back and check it out on our website or YouTube channel because uh, they, they kind of go together. In, in the last chapter, God mentioned a dinosaur, a land dinosaur uh, by the name of Behemoth. And, and we saw from the description that it was probably what we know today as a brontosaurus. In this chapter, God describes another creature, similar but, but different, in the sense that Behemoth was a land animal, the creature that God is going to describe in this chapter, uh, which is called Leviathan, is a, a sea animal. It's a water animal. And I'll just go ahead and, and kind of give you the, the spoiler. Uh, what God is describing in this chapter is a fire-breathing dragon. And now you might think that's, that's fairy tales or that's insane or whatever, but I, I'm going to I would encourage you to just kind of stick with me and, and hear me out as we kind of go through this. And I want to give you some thoughts tonight in regards to what the Bible is teaching here and talking about. First of all, let's deal with our passage, Job 41. We see the description of Leviathan. And first of all, God begins with these series of questions, and, and he's talking about the fact that Leviathan is an untamed beast. It is a, uh, a fierce animal. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook? Now remember that Leviathan is a sea creature, so God is using these, these terminology uh, like if, if you were fishing. He, he's saying, can you catch Leviathan like you would catch a fish? He says, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? So he's talking about pulling him out of the water like with a fishing hook that you would let down into the water. And God is saying, can you catch Leviathan like you catch a fish? And of course, we know the answer is no. And then he says this in verse 2. He says, canst thou put a hook into his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he, and the he there is referring to Leviathan, he says, will he make many supplications unto thee? The word supplication means to, to beg or to make a request for. And, and what God, and he's being a little bit sarcastic here, he's, he's talking about this animal, Leviathan, and he says, is he going to make many supplications to you? Is he, are you going to catch him with a hook? Are you going to put a hook into his nose and bore his jaw through with a thorn? And is he going to beg for his life from you? Is he going to make many supplications unto thee? Notice the last part of verse 3. Uh, will he speak soft words unto thee? And if you remember in Proverbs, the Bible says, a soft answer turneth away wrath. 
And the, the idea is this, is, is, is Leviathan going to be careful around you? Is, is he going to walk on eggshells around you? Is what God's asking Job, and he's asking, would Leviathan do this for any man? Would he beg for, uh, for his life in front of any man? Would he speak soft words unto any man? Look at verse 4. He says, will he, Leviathan again, make a covenant with thee? The word covenant means to make a deal or an agreement. And, and the idea here is, would he make a truce? Would he fly the white flag and say, okay, let, let's, let's make a deal. Let's not fight anymore. Is Leviathan afraid of you? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou take him for a servant forever? Can you capture him? Can you domesticate him? Notice verse 5. Will thou play with him as with a bird? Or will thou bind him for thy maidens? Can you catch him like you would catch a bird and bring it home for your daughter to play with? Is what God is asking. Can you, can you, so obviously what God describing, if we don't know anything about Leviathan, and all we know about Leviathan is what we've read so far, we would say, well, this is obviously some sort of a fierce, untamed, wild, strong animal because you, you can't catch him with a hook. You can't domesticate him. He, he's not afraid of us. He doesn't beg to us. He doesn't speak softly to us. He's not, he's not like these animals, you know, where we're, we're told that you, you're out in nature and they're more afraid of you than you are of them and they hear you coming and they kind of scurry away. Not Leviathan. He's not going to speak softly, uh, speak soft words unto thee. If anyone's going to be scurrying away, it's going to be you. He says he's not going to make a covenant. He's not going to make a truce. He's not going to make an agreement. He's not going to be your servant. You're not going to play with him like a bird. You're not going to catch him in a cage and bring him home to your maidens, to your young ladies, to your daughters is the idea there. Look at verse 6. He says, shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? And this is what God is saying. God is saying, are you and your posse, are you and your group, your hunt group, going to go out and catch him and, and, and kill him and uh, cook him and feed on him? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Now, let me just say this, and we'll get more into the description of, of, of Leviathan here in, in a minute, but oftentimes the scoffers will say, oh, Leviathan's just a, a crocodile. What's being described is this alligator. Well, the problem with that is that people eat crocodiles. And people catch crocodiles and eat crocodiles. And, and God is saying about this animal, he says, are you going to make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? And, and then God begins to describe this animal. Notice uh, how uh, terrifying Leviathan is. Look at verse 7. Canst thou fill his skin with barbed iron or his head with fish spears? We're going to come back to that later on. Verse 8. Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. And here, here's what he's saying is if, if you ever accidentally lay your hand on him, you'll do that one time. You won't make that mistake again. Lay thine hand upon him and you'll remember the battle. You'll, if you survive, you, you will do no more. Notice verse 9, Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one, notice, shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? It says if you were to just be out in the wilderness and you happen to, to come across, you, you would fall to the ground. You would be cast down just at the sight of him. Notice verse 10, None is so fierce that there stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Now, here's what's interesting, is that God is describing for us this fierce animal, 
that nobody can, everyone's afraid of, no one's going to try to hunt it, no one's going to try to kill it. Verse 10, none is so fierce that there stir him up. Here's God speaking to Job, God speaking to mankind, saying no one is tough enough to want to stir him up. Then God says this, who then is able to stand before me? And here's the idea. The idea is this, that God is saying is, you're not tough enough to stand before Leviathan. You're definitely no match for me. God would say, I'm the one that created Leviathan. I'm the one that Leviathan's afraid of. I'm the one that can kill Leviathan. He says, none is so fierce that there's to him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Look at verse 11. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor... I want you to notice the words here. His comely proportion. Here, God says, I'm not going to conceal, I'm not going to hide this beast, this animal that I prepared. He said, I'm not going to conceal his parts. I'm not going to, nor his power. And then he says, nor his comely proportion. And this is uh, a, a reference to the size of this animal. This is a huge animal. It's big. He, has, he says, I'm not going to conceal his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Uh, look at verse 14. Who can open... Notice how, how the mouth of this animal is described. Who can open the doors of his face? God refers to the mouth of this animal... As doors. And, and again, the idea is that this is a massive animal. His mouth is like the size of a human door. A human being could walk in through the mouth of this uh, being. Why? Because he's of comely proportion. He's a, he's a huge animal. Who can open the doors of his face? His, notice, his teeth are terrible roundabout. I want you to remember that about his teeth. His teeth are terrible roundabout. Now, skip down to verse 22. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but I'm just going to show you a couple of things about the size of Leviathan. I want you to notice that in verse 14, we're told that his teeth are terrible roundabout. In verse 22, we're told about his neck. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. Now, the fact that God says that there's strength in his neck tells us something about his neck, because I, I mean, I don't know, but I don't know that you would look at uh, really many wild animals and think to yourself, wow, look at that lion, he's got a strong neck. Or look at that bear, he's got a strong neck. Uh, you know, you would probably say other things are strong. I don't know that the neck is something you would highlight unless the neck was highlighted on that animal. You might look at a giraffe and say, it's got to have a strong neck. And here he says, in his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. Notice verse 24. His heart is, a fir is as firm as stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. And again, your heart is a muscle. And this is all a reference to the strength. It says that his heart is, is as firm as a stone. Verse 25. When he raiseth himself, when he, when he ra excuse me, verse 25. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. It says when, when this animal with this neck that cries out strength, with this 
teeth that are terrible round, when it opens the, the mouth that looks like doors, it says, he says when he raises himself up, he said the mighty are afraid, and it says by reason of breakings, they purify themselves. And, and what that means is that he says if a mighty man, and in the Bible the word mighty is often used for like a warrior or a soldier or some, 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 some sort of uh, a fighter, and, and he says if there's, a, if there's a soldier out there or some sort of hunter, some sort of warrior out there, and, and this is a tough guy, and they come across this Leviathan, and this Leviathan would happen to raise up himself, he said the mighty would be afraid, and they would begin to purify themselves. Often what people begin to do whenever they find themselves in, in frightening situations where where they think they're going to die or something's going to happen, what do they start doing? They start, you know, calling out to God and I'm sorry for this and I'm sorry for that and, you know, please forgive me and all these things. People, you know, they, they always, everyone wants to get, get right with God if they feel like they're in some sort of a dangerous situation. This is what God is saying about life and if he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid by reason of breaking, they purify themselves. This, this Leviathan is a huge fierce, terrible animal. And I want you to notice that not only is he terrifying and not only is he large, he's also a reptile. God goes on and on to describe for us the scales on this animal. Look at verse 15, Job 41, 15. I realize we're taking, we're going to go through the whole chapter. We're taking a little bit out of, out of order. Notice verse 15. His scales are his pride. That means that the scales are something he's proud of. They're part of his strength. His, scale are his, his scales are his pride, shut up together as with a closed seal. He said his scales are so tightly shut up and that they're so closely sealed. Verse 16, one is so near to another, referring to the scales, and that no air can come between them. Air doesn't even flow between the scales is what God is saying here. Verse 17, they are joined one to another, the scales. They stick together. They cannot be sundered. He's saying you, you can't split these scales apart. And, and because these scales are so strong, they're, it's his pride, and they're so closely sealed near one to another, and, and no air can come between them, and they're joined one to another. He, he says... You, you can't, uh, uh, you, you, they stick together, they cannot be sundered, they cannot be split apart. He says, because of this, these scales provide like armor for this animal. Look at verse 7. He says, Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? He says, look, if you were able to get near this animal and, and you took a spear and began to just stab at its, at its head, he said, you wouldn't penetrate. You can't fill his skin with barbed irons, his head with fish spears. Look at verse 23. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. It's all a reference to the scales. And as a result, he's got this armor. Look at verse 26. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold. The spear, the dart, nor the habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as, as rotten wood. He said, you try to attack him with a sword. You try to attack him with a spear. You try to attack him uh, uh, with, with, with darts. He said, it doesn't matter if you're using iron. It doesn't matter if you're using brass. He said, iron is like straw to him, and brass is like rotten wood. Notice verse 28. The arrows cannot make him flee. 
Sling stones are turned with, uh, with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. He said, you got a group of hunters there, and they start shaking a spear and, and yelling and saying, we're, we're going to kill that Leviathan. He laughs at that. He laugheth at the shaking of the spear. Verse 30, sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp points, uh, pointed things upon the mire. So I want you to notice that we have this, this, what the Bible is describing here is an animal, is a reptile that lives in the sea that is huge, that has a strong neck. Now, people will look at the Bible and they'll point at a chapter like Job 41 and say, the Bible's ridiculous. The Bible is filled with myths and stories. I mean, how ridiculous would you have, how stupid would you have to believe to believe in a book that teaches that there's a big giant reptile with a long neck with fierce teeth that uh, lives in the water and it has, you, you know, just, it, it, it has these scales that are like armor. Nobody can kill it. Nobody can destroy it. And people mock at the Bible and say, that's ridiculous. And then, and then the same people go to some secular university and go to some secular college. And of course, you know I've got to have some pictures for tonight's sermon because you guys liked this picture so much last time. I'm afraid I won't be able to keep your attention going forward, they go to the, they, they, those people, here's what they say, they say, the Bible's ridiculous, why would you ever believe in a book that teaches those types of fairy tales, that there's a dragon, some sort of a large reptile with a long neck, with, with terrible teeth, that no human could kill, and that wasn't afraid of anyone, that's ridiculous. We believe in science. And they go to university, and I'm not against it, and they open up a book, and they have a picture of this thing. And they're like, this is science, and I would agree. They, they get a picture of this thing, and they're like, the Bible's stupid. I mean, Job must have been smoking something 4,000 years ago to tell us about a reptile that lived in the water with a long neck with terrible teeth that no human could kill. But we've got science, and we found bones. And let me tell you, this is more accurate than the Bible. This is the Bible! This is the, look, let me tell you something. The Bible's been ahead of science for a long time. You say, do you believe in dinosaurs? Yeah, because the Bible talks about them. You know what I don't believe in? I don't believe that dinosaurs, and we talked about this last week, died off 65 million years ago and that no human being had seen them because God is having a conversation with Job about Leviathan and saying, look at Leviathan. And God is describing for us what modern man has now found. Now, of course, this is not a real picture, all right? Uh, but they found the bones, and, they, and they've uh, put the bones together and said, this is what we think an animal, a prehistoric quote-unquote, sea animal would look like, and they're pretty much describing what God is describing in the book of Job. And the same people will say, Job's ridiculous, God's ridiculous, the Bible's ridiculous, this is science. And it's like, but they're saying the same thing. And you found this in the 1800s, 200 years ago, and you think you're so smart. Job lived during the time of Abraham, 4,000 years ago, he's already talking to us about it, but we're the idiots. 
Here God is describing this terrifying reptile with scales, with teeth. Now here's the interesting thing. This, this animal is drawn, and of course it's not a real, they, they, nobody's ever, nobody that drew this has ever seen this. Job side. You know, this thing's not drawn with scales. But you know that bones don't tell you what the flesh and the scales look like? But we, we have animals today, like crocodiles, that have scales, that live in the water. And, but you know what's interesting is that the bone structure might tell you something about their teeth. Something that God describes here in verse 14, he says, his teeth are terrible roundabout. Isn't that how you would describe this thing? I mean, those teeth are pretty terrible roundabout. And this is what God is describing. God says, who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible roundabout. I'm looking at this picture and I'm thinking, yeah, that looks like teeth terrible roundabout. Who can open the doors of his face? God says, in his neck remaineth strength. And I would say, yeah, I think so. God is describing this Leviathan. And what is it? It's a large reptile. Now, here's, here's why people will balk at the Bible. Is because the Bible mentions dragons. And, and I'm going to talk about that later, here in a little bit later in the sermon. But let me just continue on with this description. Because here's the part that people think is just ridiculous. When God describes this thing, which look, science and the Bible would all agree that this animal lived on earth at some point. When God describes this thing, it also, the Bible also describes that it breathes fire. Now, let me show it to you, verse 18. Look, the, the Bible's more interesting than, than Hollywood. Amen. You got to read the Bible. Amen. Job 41, 18. By his kneesings. You see the word kneesings? The word kneesing is like sneezing minus the snot, all right? Kneesing is like, like blowing through your nostrils. Here we're told by his kneesings, by his blowing through his nostrils, notice, a light doth shine. When he, when he puffs through his breath by his kneesings, the Bible says that a light doth shine. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Look at verse 19. Out of his mouth go burning lamps. Burning lamps come out of his mouth. And sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils go with smoke. Out of his seed, uh, as, out, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. What is the Bible describing? First of all, it's describing an animal that looks like this. And it's telling us that an animal that looked like this also breathed out fire. Now again, the educated people would say, that is ridiculous. That there would be an animal that could produce some sort of a spark or some sort of a shock or some sort of a fire or some sort of combustion. But again, you could go to the same universities that scoff at the Bible and go take certain classes and learn about animals that are alive right now, that you can go to an aquarium and look at them right now that produce electricity, like an electric eel, like an electric stingray, like an electric catfish, like a black ghost knife fish, like a northern stargazer. There are insects that live on earth right now 
that produce explosions and combustions, like the bombardier beetle. It ejects a hot, uh, nauseous chemical spray from the tip of the abdomen with a popping sound. The spray is produced from a reaction between two chemical compounds stored in its body, mixed at its will, and it produces a combustion and an, an explosion. I'm just telling you, we've got animals, this is ridiculous, an animal that could create a spark. We've got animals that create sparks now. We've got animals that create explosions now. Why is it ridiculous that there be a, a giant uh, reptile called a dragon? I mean, that's ridiculous. But you've got giant reptiles you believe in. You just don't call them dragons. You call them dinosaurs. They both start with a D. They pretty much describe the exact same thing. So what is God describing for us? He's describing for us a dinosaur or a dragon. The question is, is it a dinosaur or is it a dragon? And the answer I'll just give you in case you check out. The, here's the answer. It's both. Now, let me just read to you from a, uh, an article from the bbcearth.com website. It says, uh, Plesiosaurus, which is this thing, is often mistakenly referred to as a dinosaur. And this is, this is not written by a Christian or whatever. This is just a science guy. It says, when in fact it is a prehistoric marine reptile that lived at the same time as the dinosaurs. It had a long neck, four paddle-like flippers and a tail. A Pleosaurus would have roamed the vast seas of the Jurassic. Some say Pleosaurus looked like the legendary Loch Ness Monster. Pleosaurus looked something like a swimming bronchiosaurus, a big animal with a long neck, tiny skull, and a barrel-shaped chest. Both of these unusual animals probably use their long necks to reach otherwise inaccessible food items. So the question is, 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 is God describing a dinosaur? And I would say, yeah, God is describing a dinosaur. But people say, but does God call it a dinosaur? Go, go to the book of Job, if you would. Job, excuse me, Psalms. You're in Job. Go to Psalms. Just right after Job, you have the book of Psalms. Let me just explain something to you. The word dinosaur was invented in 1842 by a paleontologist named Sir Richard Owens. Your King James Bible was translated in 1611, um, you know, 200 plus years uh, before the word dinosaur was even invented. So if you're going to look for the word dinosaur in your King James Bible, no, you're not going to find it. Before 1842, the word that was used to describe Large reptile-looking creatures was dragons. Now, people will say, dragons are fairy tales. Dragons aren't real. The Bible's not real because it describes these large lizards, these large reptiles, and it calls them dragons. That's all fairy tales. Then, 200 years ago, they started digging up all the bones of these giant reptiles. And instead of saying, huh, Maybe the Bible's true. They said, no, dragons aren't real. This is a dinosaur. What's a dinosaur? A huge, giant reptile with scary teeth that nobody could kill. What's a dragon? A huge, giant reptile with scary teeth that nobody could kill. Aren't we talking about the same thing? Here's what I'm saying. People say, the Bible's silly for describing dragons, but then they started digging up these huge, giant reptiles. What is it? Psalm 74, are you there? Look at verse 13. Psalm 74, verse 13. 
Psalm 74, 13, the Bible says, Thou, the thou there is referring to God. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Notice the Bible describes these dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces. Is using the terms interchangeably. He broke the heads of the dragons in verse 13. He broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave us him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Go to Psalm 104. Look at verse 25. Psalm 104, verse 25. So is this great and wide sea. Notice, it's a, it's a sea animal. Wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great. Look, we know that right now, today, there are huge, large animals that live in the ocean and live in the seas. He says, both small and great beasts, verse 26, there go the ships, there is that Leviathan whom thou has made to play therein. The question is not, whether or not these animals existed, the Bible says they existed, and science has caught up and figured out, wow, they did exist. The question is, and this is really why science wants to attack the Bible, is because what science tells us is that these animals lived 65 million years ago, and humans only evolved 200,000 years ago, and they say no human being has ever seen a dinosaur. The Bible teaches that the heavens and the earth were created, you know, 6,000 years ago. And that all, everything, human beings, animals, everything, were all created in the same week. The question is not, do these animals exist, or did they ever exist? The question is, is the Bible right, or is the science falsely so-called that we're being taught today correct? And here's all I'm saying, and we kind of started this last week. That's what I would say. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. I, I gave you this idea that if the Bible was true, if the Bible is true, and God actually created men and dinosaurs and all animals in, in the creation week, a seven-day literal week, then there would be evidence that men walked with dinosaurs or dragons. There would be evidence of that. And, and you said, well, what kind of evidence? Well, last week we talked about the fact that there would be four different areas of evidence. There would be scriptural evidence. We've seen that. The Bible would tell us, because the Bible tells us everything, the Bible would tell us that dinosaurs existed and that they walked with men. We've seen that. In Job chapter 40, we saw behemoth described. We talked about that last week in detail. In Job 41, we saw Leviathan described. Pretty much two similar animals, one in the land, one in the sea. Scriptural evidence, check. Then we talked about the fact that there would be physical evidence physical proof that could not be explained away. And we talked about that. We talked about the fact that there are uh, 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 different temples that have engraved in them pictures of what we now know today to be dinosaurs. We've seen uh, uh, we, there, there are cave, uh, uh, caves that have uh, 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 cuts in them to represent uh, these pictures of these dinosaurs that look exactly like the dinosaurs that we've discovered, but yet the problem is that these stones were cut a thousand years ago. So someone must have seen it. We talked about the physical evidence. We talked about that last week. 
Two other pieces of evidence that you would find if men actually walked with dinosaurs, like the Bible teaches, would be circumstantial evidence and would be testimonial evidence. Circumstantial evidence would be things that by themselves wouldn't prove anything, but as circumstances, they would draw a picture. The circumstantial evidence would be things like myths, stories, and legends of these great beasts, these great reptiles, which we now call dinosaurs, but they called dragons. The other evidence would be testimonial evidence. What is that? Eyewitness accounts from credible and reliable sources. Eyewitness evidence from credible and reliable sources that would say that they had seen this. So let me just spend some time tonight and uh, take a little bit of time and kind of go through some of these uh, evidence, if, if you would. First, let's talk about circumstantial evidence. Myths, stories, legends, all those things. Again, the word dinosaur was not invented until 1842. Before that, large reptiles-looking creatures were simply known as dragons. Let me just read to you uh, from this website, Weebly.com. Here's what they said. They said, dragon history is nearly universal throughout the world's ancient cultures. Where did this global concept originate? How did societies throughout the world describe, record, draw, etch, and sew uh, and carve such creatures in such uniformity if they did not witness these creatures during their lifetime. The thing about dragon myths is that they are not contained to any one culture. You can go into the European culture of the Knights and England and Germany and whatever, and you know what you're going to find? Myths and legends about dragons. What exactly? Large reptiles that lived on earth. But yet you go into Asia and into China, into cultures that were separated from Europe in, in, the, in the ancient times for sure, and yet they describe dragons as well, large reptiles that lived alongside them. You can go into South America uh, on, the other side, on the other side of the world, go into the cultures of Central and South America, and you know what they have? Uh, stories of large reptiles. Dragon history is universal throughout the world's ancient cultures. So how is it that all human beings throughout history are dreaming up these stories of these large reptiles and we just happen to unearth them 200 years ago? It's not a coincidence. Men lived with these animals. Chinese history, the longest continuous secular history of any nation, is full of dragons. Ancient Chinese books even tell of a family that kept dragons and raised babies. It is said that in those days, Chinese kings used dragons for pulling royal chariots on special occasions. The Chinese calendar, by the way, uh, has 12 different animals that uh, represent the months. It has the rat, the ox, the tiger, the rabbit, the snake, the horse, the goat, the monkey, the rooster, the dog, the pig. All those are normal animals like the ones you and I see, uh, can see today. And the fifth animal in that calendar is a dragon. They have a rat, normal, ox, normal, tiger, normal, rabbit, normal. Then they threw in a dragon. I'm sure they believed that to be normal. Snake, normal. Horse, normal. Goat, normal. Monkey, normal. Rooster, normal. Dog, normal. Pig. 
The Chinese calendar pictures a total of 12 animals, 11 of them normal and living animals today, and one is a dragon. I believe that that dragon was a normal living animal when that calendar was developed. How about the Epic of Gilgamesh? The Epic of Gilgamesh is an ancient Sumerian story dating back to 3000 BC or more. Tells of a hero named Gilgamesh who, when he went into a remote forest cut down, to cut down cedar trees, encountered a huge, vicious dragon which he slew, cutting off his head as a trophy. And I'm not saying that these myths actually happened. What I'm saying is people were telling these stories because they'd seen these animals. How about Beowulf? Beowulf is regarded as the oldest English writing and story. Beowulf was a legendary heroic dragon slayer of the Geats who lived in 495 to 583 AD. His exploits include killing several sea reptiles and a terrestrial dragon called Grendel. He killed, in his story, he killed Leviathan and Behemoth. Beowulf, and again, I'm not saying that this actually happened, that these, this story actually happened. What, I, what I'm saying is that people told these myths, they told these stories because they'd seen these animals. Beowulf ultimately lost his life at the age of 88 from wounds he received while uh, fighting a flying reptile that may have been a giant uh, pterosaur. So if we're looking for biblical evidence, we have it. If we're looking for physical evidence, we have it. If we're looking for uh, circumstantial evidence, we have it. it. Is it just a coincidence that every ancient culture... Talked about giant reptiles? Is it a coincidence that in every ancient culture there's myths and stories of these giant reptiles? But then, go with me to Deuteronomy, if you would, Deuteronomy chapter 19. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Then we have testimonial evidence. Testimonial evidence will be constituted as eyewitness accounts from credible and reliable sources. Eyewitness accounts from credible and reliable sources. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15 says this, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth, at the mouth of, notice what the Bible says, at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. The Bible says that if one witness stands up and says, this happened, it may or may not have happened, but it's not enough to convict anyone. God says you need two, you need three witnesses. What are the witnesses? They have to be an eyewitness. They have to say, I saw. And, of course, you want your witnesses to be credible and reliable. You say, do we have two or three eyewitnesses. Just for, for sake of, of, of being thorough, I've got one, two, three, four, five, five witnesses for you that I believe you would consider credible and reliable. What are they? And the first one is a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus. Herodotus, you may have heard of him or, or you may have not, is a Greek historian that lived in the 5th century B.C., now, you may have never heard of him, but I want you to know that he is credible and reliable by the world standards. 
You say, how can Herodotus be uh, credible and reliable by the world standards? I say by the world standards because these Greeks were all a bunch of weirdos, okay? But he's credible and reliable by the world standards because by the world standards, he is known as the father of history. Herodotus is known, if you go to secular university and learn about Greek history, you'll learn about Herodotus and what, what was his big thing that he did for mankind? He is the father of history. What does that mean? He was the first historian to collect his materials systematically and test their accuracy to a certain extent and arrange them in a well-constructed and vivid narrative. He's the first guy that had the idea, hey, all these things going on, we should write it down. And we should organize it systematically. We should test their accuracy so we're not writing down things that aren't real. And we should uh, 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 arrange them in a well-constructed and vivid narrative so that people will know what happened. And it'll be known as history. And Herodotus is known as the father of history. He pretty much invented the idea of documenting history. This guy is a reliable source by the world standards. He's credible. He's reliable. I mean, he created history. Now, he didn't. God created history, but you know what I mean. Now, notice what he said. Here's a quote from Herodotus. He said, There is a place in Arabia situated very near the city of Buto, which I went on hearing of some winged serpents. And when I arrived there, I saw bones and spines of serpents in such quantities as it would be impossible to describe. The form of the serpent is like that of the water snake, but he has wings without feathers and as like, uh, and as, like as possible to the wings of a bat. So we're, here we have Herodotus who you learn about him in secular school. He's known as the father of history. He's credible and reliable, and he has a quote where he says, I saw the, the bones of these animals because I was told about these winged serpents, and I saw the form of the serpent. I, I saw uh, the quantity as it would be impossible to describe. And he said it was the form of a water snake, but it, he had wings without feathers, and the wings were like the wings of a bat. Now, you might say Herodotus is a crazy old man. Okay, whatever. I mean, the world says he's reliable and he's credible, but you say, well, that's just one witness. Okay, let me give you a second one. Here's another, uh, another reliable and credible witness. You may have heard of him. Alexander the Great, the king of ancient Greece. Alexander III of Macedonia, commonly known as Alexander the Great, was a king of the ancient Greek kingdom of Macedonia and a member of the Argid dynasty. Look, Alexander the Great was a real person. He's a credible and reliable source. He pretty much ruled the world during his time. And, and, and one of the reasons that he's so credible and reliable is because he had, he had so much warfare and, and he'd conquered so many lands, he traveled a lot and he took detailed notes about what he saw. And here's what Alexander the Great wrote. In, in 330 BC, after Alexander the Great invaded India, he brought back reports of seeing a great hissing dragon living in a cave which people were worshiping as gods. Now here's what people will say, because Alexander the Great, he wrote all these things and they're all accurate. And then he has this part about the dragons and people are like, yeah, that's kind of weird. Herodotus is the, king, the father of history He's all about 
uh, finding uh, material, testing its accuracy, uh, 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 writing it down systematically, and preserving it. And people are like, yeah, great. The father of, of, of history. And then he talks about dragons. And people are like, yeah, that part's a little weird. Okay, you say, well, yeah, those two, I, I don't know. Okay, here's another one. Maybe this one's credible and reliable enough. Aristotle, Greek philosopher. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he lived between 384 B.C. and 322 B.C., made a significant and lasting contributions to nearly every aspect of human knowledge, from logic to biology to ethics to athe- uh, atheism. Aristotle is someone, and again, I'm not saying that, that these are heroes of the faith by any stretch of the imagination, but I am saying that by our world standards, these are people that are credible, reliable. People say, yeah, Aristotle, Greek philosopher, smart guy. Okay, well, here's what he said. He said, the eagle and the dragon are enemies. This was in his writings. For the eagle feeds on serpents. The glanus is shallow water, is often destroyed by the dragon serpent. Here's another another eyewitness, Marco Polo. Some of you thought that was just a game you play in the pool. That's actually a guy. He was a traveler and a merchant. Marco Polo was one of the first and most famous Europeans to travel to Asia during the Middle Ages. He traveled farther than any of his predecessors during his 24-year journey along the Silk Road, reaching China and Mongolia, where he became a confidant to Kublai Khan. Here's what Marco Polo wrote. He said, Leaving the city of Yaki and traveling 10 days in a western direction, you reach the province of Karasan, which is, almost the name of the, which is also the name of the chief city. Here are seen huge serpents, 10 paces in length. That would be about 30 feet for us. And 10 spaces, that would be about 8 feet, girt of the body. At the forepart, near the head, they have two short legs, having three claws like those of a tiger with eyes larger than a four-penny loaf and, a very gl- and, uh, and very glaring. The jaws are wide open enough to swallow a man. Like God said that their mouth is like a door. The teeth are large and sharp, and their whole appearance is so formidable that neither man nor any king, uh, a kind of animal, can approach them without uh, terror. Others are, met with, uh, others are met with of a smaller size, being eight, six, or five paces long. Again, this is what Marco Polo... And, and here's the thing. People take Marco Polo's writings about the things he saw and the, the things he experienced, and they'll say, we, we know that this time frame, this was going on and this was happening because Marco Polo wrote about it, and he was a real guy that was actually traveling. But then he writes about dinosaurs and pe- or dragons, and people are like, yeah, that's kind of weird. Aristotle, they're like Greek philosopher. He's, you know... Uh, made contributions to nearly every aspect of human knowledge. But then he talks about dragons, and we were like, eh, that's odd. Here's what I'm telling you is we, here we got some credible, reliable sources saying they saw dragons. How about Noah Webster, the educator? He didn't have an eyewitness account, but here's what he wrote. Uh, the famous American Christian educator, Noah Webster, published his American Dictionary of the English Language in 1828, 13 years before the word dinosaur was first used. This work defines 
the noun dragon under two separate headings. The second gives reference to dragons in scripture as a large marine fish or serpent called Leviathan, a venomous land serpent, as in Psalm 91, and the devil who is called the old serpent in the New Testament. Webster's next heading for dragon has a single definition, a genus of animal, the draco, they have four legs, a cylinder tail, and membranous wings radiated like the fins of a flying fish. That's what the Webster's 1828 dictionary said. If you looked up the word dragon, like if it was a real animal. You say, well, why would they write about it like if it was a real animal? Here's why. Because it was a real animal. Amen. Go back to Job 41 if you would. Job 41. You say, you believe in dragons? I believe whatever the Bible says. That's ridiculous. Here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. The Bible says there are these animals called dragons, large reptiles, fierce, large, gigantic reptiles. And people say, you're an idiot for believing that. Yet, you can find temples and caves with carvings all over the world carved a thousand years ago by human beings who carved out images that look exactly like what we have found dinosaurs to be like, yet you have credible, reliable witnesses from history that we, we take everything else they said as true and accurate, and they mention dragons. Are they crazy? And, and, and then we have the circumstantial evidence the fact that all ancient cultures talk about these, they don't call them dinosaurs, they talk about these dragons, these large, and here's all I'm telling you, it all points to one thing, the, the, the same thing we always come to, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible is always true. Amen. The Bible's true about everything. The Bible's right about everything. And when human beings find something the Bible's wrong about, no Leviathan ever lived, it's just science hasn't caught up yet. In the 1500s and the 1600s, people, people probably read Job 41, Job 40, and said, that animal never existed. Then in the 1800s, they started digging up these huge bones. The Bible's always right. Now, let me just quickly uh, give you just kind of a, a, a spiritual application, if you would. Go, go back to Job 41. And let me just say this. Dinosaurs are real. Let me show you the other pictures. Otherwise, you're going to fall asleep. So, That's Leviathan. Those are dragons. Those are dinosaurs. These aren't real pictures, okay? This is just what somebody thinks they probably might have looked like. Anyway, this is what the Bible is referring to. But let me just say this. Leviathan, in the Bible, it was a real animal. But the real animal Leviathan represents or is a picture of the devil. I want you to know that. Job 41 and verse 33 says this, Upon earth there is not his like who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. The Bible will equate and use Leviathan, or the dragon, as a representation of the devil. Go to, go, just real quickly, if you would, go, go to Revelation chapter 12. Just real quickly, last book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 9. Revelation 12, 9. And the dragon, Revelation 12, 9. And the dragon was cast out. I want you to notice how the devil's referred to. 
the dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. God wants to make sure we know who he's talking about. The dragon, that old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So notice that the dragon represents the devil, represents Satan. Leviathan represents Satan. Go back to Job 41. Look at verse 10 and 11 again. Here's the application. You are no match for the devil. Now, you're no match for, for the real Leviathan, the actual animal that was, you're no match for this either. In your little boat with your little fishing hook, you're not going to catch this thing. But the spiritual application is this. You are no match for the devil. Do you know the devil wants to destroy your life? God uses these analogies of animals to describe the, the devil. One is Leviathan, the dragon, and the other one is a lion. By the way, you're no match for a lion. The Bible says, be vigilant, be sober, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus looked at Peter and he said, he said, the devil, he said, the devil hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. The Bible says, that the thief has come to kill and to destroy. Let me tell you something. The devil wants to destroy your life. The devil wants to destroy your marriage, wants to destroy your children, wants to destroy your health, wants to destroy your finances. The devil is out. If you're saved, there's a target on your back. The devil and his angels, it's called spiritual warfare. They're out to destroy you. And here's the bad news. You're no match for the devil. The Bible says that the archangel Michael does not bring a railing accusation against the devil. Even Michael, the archangel, who's stronger and mightier than us, was not willing to bring an accusation against the devil. Why? Because you and I are no match for the devil. But you know who is? Job 41, look at verse 10. Job 41, verse 10. None is so fierce that there stir him up. Leviathan or the devil? Both. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Here's what God is saying. The word prevented means to come before. He says, who stands before me that I should repay him? When I go after Leviathan, when I go after Satan, who stands before me to keep me? You know, like when uh, all the ghetto guys, when they want to act like they're going to get in a fight, but they're not actually going to get in a fight. You know what I'm talking about? Start acting like they're going to get in a fight. All their friends are holding them back. The funny thing is that they start acting like they're being held back before anybody is actually holding them back. <laughs> God's saying, if I'm going to go fight Leviathan, who's holding me back? Who has the power to hold me back? He says... Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. You know what God says? God says, you're no match for the devil. But the devil's no match for me. Amen. Isaiah 27, just real quickly, we'll finish it right here. Isaiah 27, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Isaiah 27. You say, Pastor, the devil's beating me up. The devil's destroying my spiritual life, destroying my physical life, destroying my relationships, destroying my testimony. Well, I'm here to tell you, 
You're no match for the devil. But you partner yourself up with God, and God can help. Isaiah 27, verse 1, In that day the Lord with a sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan. By the way, Isaiah 27 is actually about end times prophecy. Leviathan is being used here to represent the devil. In that day the Lord with a sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, the crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. You are no match for the devil, but the devil is no match for God. So when we partner ourselves up with God, the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Say, the devil's destroying my life. You better start walking with God. Amen. devil's destroying my marriage. Better get your marriage partnered on God. Amen. The devil's destroying my, my kids. My kids are going uh, down the wrong path. You need to get those kids geared on God. Amen. Say, Why? Because you're no match for the devil. You're going to catch him like a fish? Are you going to play with him like a bird? People think, oh, I can just play with the devil and I'll be fine. No, no, you're going to get played by the devil. Catch him like a bird and bring him for the maidens to play with? No. You're no match for the devil. But he's no match for God. So you just get yourself with God. And he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for Job 41. Thank you for this passage and the fact that the Bible is always so accurate. Lord, I pray pray you'd help us to know and understand the primary application that there really were large reptiles that lived on earth and lived in the sea. You told us about them, behemoth, leviathan, Thousands and thousands of years ago and about 200 years ago, mankind caught up and realized that it was true. I pray you'd help us to realize that we can have confidence in the Word of God. But Lord, I pray you'd also would help us to realize that there's a spiritual application here. That dragon wants to destroy this church, wants to destroy our lives wants to destroy our testimonies, and we're no match for them. But you are. Help us to get centered on you. Help us to get, lay our foundation upon you that you might help us win these battles, win this spiritual warfare. Lord, we love you. And Lord, I do pray for my wife that you would help her to recover and to be strong and to get better soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.